Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live here from the Calm Radio Studios here in Mbantua, Alice Springs. Great to have your company this Tuesday morning. We're, of course, broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 and here in Alice Springs on 8 Kin FM. Today's, of course, Tuesday, the 28th of May 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company up until 12 o'clock today. Well, coming up on the program, we're going to be hearing from Professor Pat Dudgeon, the Director of the Centre for of, uh, Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention, who has welcomed the commitment from the Western Australian McGowan government who have released their initial response to, a, to the coroner's report as well as uh, into the deaths of 13 children and young people in uh, the Kimberley and also the 2016 message stick inquiry into Indigenous youth suicide in remote areas. Professor Pat Dudgeon is going to be explaining a bit about uh, the different recommendations and in particular the cooperation with Aboriginal people that they are welcoming. We're also going to be heading down to Melbourne where uh, Karma's Paul Wiles will be catching up with uh, Dr Joseph uh, Toscano uh, to talk about... uh, his successful effort in having a frontier war memorial erected in the memory of two early war two early warriors of resistance we're also going to be looking at indigenous youth incarceration and in particular the calls from uh, a range of different human rights groups for the government to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14 we're of course going to be hearing the latest as well in aboriginal and torres strait islander news from out across the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio this Tuesday morning. Well, we're going to head into our first story now. Uh, earlier this year, Coroner Ros Fogliani released her findings from the 2017 inquest into the uh, deaths of 13 children and young people. 42 recommendations were handed down, which included things such as developing a statewide Aboriginal cultural policy for Western Australia. On the 22nd of May, the uh, McGowan government released their initial response to the coroner's report, as well as the uh, 2016 message stick inquiry into Indigenous youth suicide in remote areas. Of the combined 86 recommendations from the two reports, the WA government have fully accepted 22, uh, have accepted 33 in principle, have begun or will start implementing 16 and are considering 11. Professor Pat Dudgeon, Director of the Centre of Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention, welcomed the announcement. 
what we're excited about, and we do want to speak to the government about this, is that they accepted the principles of Indigenous leadership and co-design solutions in its um, interim response. So that's very important. We've found that we've done a lot of research in the area and we find that suicide prevention initiatives are going to be successful. They need to have the principles of self-determination ingrained in any kind of response or treatment or intervention. So, you know, we, we've based a lot of our work on Mike, Professor Michael Chandler's work from Canada where they found that communities with low suicide rates actually have high levels of self-determination. They were in charge of their own services, in charge of disease making but they also were undertaking cultural strengthening activities so those two issues are very important self-determination and strengthening culture so if a government's um, committed to taking those approaches that's a very important and very powerful first step. You know we've seen mob over the years calling for the opportunity to have you know control over their own destinies through self-determination are you confident that communities are going to be able to get that opportunity? I hope this is a realistic perspective, but I I believe that government is ready for a change. I think that we've come out of a period of history, particularly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, but for all marginalised and disempowered groups, where there was the thinking around that the authority knew best, so they should make decisions for other people. Now that's starting to change and, and there's a recognition that, you know, people need to be in charge of their own futures. They need to be a part of that decision-making. And we see it in the con- consumers' movement in um, mental health. So when I was sitting as a, a commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission, we had two consumer reps on the commission, and they were fantastic. They really, you know, bought their lived experience and were really at the table making good, sound decisions that we needed to be heard. And so in some respects, they were equal to the mental health professionals that were a part of the conversation as well. So seeing people as the total victims and not having ability to contribute to a solution is changing. And um, and I think that's an important thing. I think things will be much more effective and um, more humane and just better overall decision-making for all groups in our society. And as you mentioned, Professor Dudgeon, we have seen that top-down approach in the past in terms of you know, dealing with things that communities, remote Aboriginal communities in particular, face. Can you just elaborate in terms of you know, explaining to people the importance of having that Indigenous involvement, particularly in, in things such as policy development? Because we know the communities. We've come from a time of um, history of colonisation where Aboriginal people were decimated. They were removed off their countries. They had a different alien culture imposed upon them. But it was to their great disadvantage. So they were seen as lesser of not being able to control their own lives, their own resources and so on. So, you know, that was a pretty brutal history to come through. And then Aboriginal people were placed in missions and reserves where they were treated as infants, you know. They weren't, they didn't make decisions over their own lives. They couldn't vote until recently. So we've come out of a history that's really, and still now, you know, racism, 
that happened. So it's amazing that people survive such a history. It's important any marginalised or disempowered people to be able to make a decision and to start making decisions and over their own lives to say what's important to you, how would you like things to be done is critical. So that's how we can bring the change about. As I was saying about the consumer movement, you know, to get insights from people who have been on the receiving end of mental health um, practice and policies, it's important to get the consumer's perspective in there because they know they... You know, it's not like they're ignorant. They know that, you know, when they've not been well, how what they would prefer to happen, that's important and valuable advice. And it makes a difference between uh, having a much more effective outcome in the first instance, but also being a civilised and humane society that works in with all members of different groups rather than one that is dictatorial and imposes solutions on people. You know, some people still think, oh, those people don't know what's going on. How could they make a decision? I mean, that was about women as well, you know. We had male doctors um, making decisions about their female functioning, which is ludicrous now, but back in the 50s, that was the dumb thing. Outside of the recommendations, are there any other measures that you think need to be in place? Outside those recommendations, and that's for a particular geographical area in Western Australia, and Western Australia is just one state in the whole country, but I think that overarchingly we need our own national Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, suicide prevention strategy or plan. I'd go so far as to say also each state should have its own Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander suicide prevention plan or activity. So we do need to focus on that. We do need resources to, to get those plans working and we need um, involvement at every level by Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander leadership from national to uh, state and to local levels. So um, full engagement of people in decision-making and also to look at what kind of resources are going into Aboriginal suicide prevention, where that goes. So it needs to go to community-controlled organisations and I think there will be a much more effective outcome. Well, I think it definitely will be very interesting then uh, seeing, you know, how things progress. Obviously, we have a new federal minister for Aboriginal affairs now, uh, Ken Wyatt has been announced as as the new minister. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, they are looking to adopt any sort of policies at that national level. There's a number of different policies that are really important and from, you know, complicated ones that are very much um, involved in the mental health area to um, adopting statements like the Uralu statement from um, the heart. There's a whole range of different policies that impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and I think that if they started looking at those, if governments started looking at these approaches, statements or declarations and looked at implementing some of them, I think that would make a better Australia. So we're, we're at the very beginning. I think there's a lot of powerful and good leadership at all different levels, both Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and non-Aboriginal, but I think it's the next step of um, pragmatic step of trying to um, bring all of this together and I think there is a huge change and very positive change coming. That was uh, Professor Pat Dudgeon, their director of the Centre of Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention. 
We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country shortly. Hi, this is Pam from Karma, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio 8 FM. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the Karma Studios, uh, Karma's Lorena Walker and Paul Wiles. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Lorena, we'll start with you. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to a uh, anniversary of a dance theatre. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 2019 is the uh, Bangara Dance Theatre's 30th anniversary and the company... Uh, we'll be celebrating its 30th year, and uh, this one is called Bangara 30 Years of 65,000, which is referring to the 65,000 years of Indigenous culture storytelling, and that's where they, um, I guess, get the inspiration from, if you've, if anyone's seen uh, the Bangara dance troupe. So they will be scheduling their Australian tour uh, in every capital city. Hopefully they come here. I'm pretty sure they will. Um, but yeah, it's just in recognition of that. And I suppose, you know, what a what a story to tell Bangara Dance Theatre, um, getting dancers from all over the country and also being able to showcase um, Aboriginal storytelling and culture dance to, you know, many other countries around the world. So yeah, this is a really cool um, cool story. Yeah, and they've been performing right around the country and, and indeed, like you said, around the world. And I think it's it's a really good way, I think, because I did have the opportunity, it was it was quite a few years ago, to actually interview uh, two of the people actually involved in the actual dance group and, you know, hearing about, uh, you know, how they're able to, you know, express that culture and understanding and, and get it across, not just for, you know, across to Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous as well, where they have little kids up and dancing and then singing in yeah. language or whatever it may be. I think it was, a, it was a really good way to have that exchange of knowledge so that people can have pride in it, but then also for those who may not have the understanding to start to grow their understanding as well. Yeah, yeah. and it, it is a dance company, so these dancers are undertaking hours of work. I mean, ballet, mm. um, all types of, of dance to... Yeah, to, to make really amazing shows. Mm. Bringing it as well to the, the field of classical ballet and the audiences that it, it uh, is presented to uh, brings Aboriginal culture to another level as well. And uh, obviously, you know, for uh, many people across the world who have very little understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, um, it's a... Uh, a unique platform to be able to share that um, at, at a very different level, as you said. Uh, you know, the Bangara take it out to the mob in the bush as well, but yeah. uh, they they're covering all all their bases in, in what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. Well, on to our next story. We'll go to you, Paul. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to a sign language book. Well, the Yolngu Sign Language Directory uh, is uh, being printed uh, following. A generous donation from the yellow wiggle, Emma Watkins. But uh, the story's not about Emma. It's actually about the the sign language directory. And uh, uh, Yonglu sign language has been used for thousands of years, um, not only for death, death conversation, that's in lack of hearing, not D-E-A-F conversation, but to hunt without scaring animals or their prey, to recognise cultural silences during mourning or to conduct secret conversations. Now, uh, 
ABC reports that over the past 25 years, anthropologist and linguist Bentley James has been compiling, documenting and writing all of his learnings of the sign language in the hope of being able to put it into a published book. Uh, the <coughs> excuse me. The project has been a labour of love for Dr. James, who struggled to find financial support. But now, thanks to the Yellow Wiggle, it's all going to happen. I think it's a great story, and um, I, I think we will um, try and contact uh, Bentley James to find out the journey of the book. But. Um, Big thanks to Yellow Wiggle for <laughs> donating. Definitely. And, and again, it's that growing of that knowledge and understanding in terms of that, you know, the different uses of sign language and things like that. Well, uh, again, uh, as it mentioned in the report there, uh, you know, um, we we know the mob over large distances um, have all different hand signals. Mm. Um, so each of the different mobs would have different hand signals. And uh, Bentley James is, uh, you know, uh, spent many, many years, 25 years, in fact, um, writing all of that down. So um, job well done for Bentley. Mm. Be interesting, definitely, yeah. to hear about that book. Uh, on to our final story. We go back to you now, Lorena. I understand you've got a story in regards to uh, Indigenous Art Awards. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to quickly mention um, last night at the Sydney Opera House, the, it was the 12th National Indigenous Art Awards, which was yeah presented at the Sydney Opera House. So um, respected elders respected elder and actor uh, Uncle Jack Charles was also there um, and he'll be honoured also uh, it, it is the prestigious ochre, uh, Red Ochre Award um, Lifetime Achievement which was presented to an artist called Lola Greeno um, so yeah it's that another um, you know La, you know, a, a big award night for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the arts uh, sector. So yeah, that was that's you know another big one for for yeah. We will get on to Uncle Jack because mm. it is National Reconciliation Week, and of course Jack Charles has spent a lifetime talking about his mob, his people, uh, since the early days of colonisation, their fight, their struggle, and. Um, Jack's out and about at the moment. Everyone wants to have a, t- a chat to him, but uh, we'll see if we can't get him, maybe get him on the show this week to talk about his ongoing journey. It would be good to speak with Jack when we were in Melbourne last. In fact, we did actually bump into him while we were in the ABC and he, he actually was keen to, to have that conversation. So it'd be, it'd be good to speak with him. But definitely, you know, again, that recognition of the work of the mob in the different spaces and, and within mm. the arts sector, obviously. The, the Red Ochre Award um, is, uh, you know, it, it is a lifetime achievement award and uh, be very keen to find out a little more about the recipient of that award for this year. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, get a hold of her. So, yep. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, once again, it's a, a really awesome Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Lorena, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. We're going to head into our next story now here on Strong Voices. Uh, Tana Minoway and Malboy uh, Hina were the first two men to be officially executed in Melbourne on the 20th of January, 1842. They were Aboriginal freedom fighters who took up arms against the colonisers and paid the ultimate price for defending First Nations people against the invasion of their lands and the genocide of their people. 
Dr. Joseph, Dr. Joseph Toscano is a medical practitioner, a broadcaster who has become widely known through his broadcasting on community radio and frequent letters to newspaper. To newspapers, uh, recently spoke with Karma's Paul Wiles. About 2002, I was going through a second-hand bookstore and I came across this little booklet about these uh, two men. It was called Jack of Cape Grim, uh, written by Jan Roberts. It's a 1988 uh, bicentenary project. And I thought to myself, you know, I think of myself as a reasonably good amateur historian. I said, how come I don't know about these people? I mean, this is, this is an extraordinary story. You know, Tanaminoi and Morbohina, two young Aboriginal men and three women went bush in um, Victoria, put across from uh, Tasmania, uh, fought against the uh, colonisers for a number of weeks, caused consternation. They were arrested eventually. And they were hung on the 20th of January, 1842. It was a great story. I mean, Tana and uh, Planobina were man and woman. They'd been married in the Christian uh, faith. Uh, Traganini had an ongoing relationship with uh, Morbohina. These were the last survivors of the, uh, gen- the war of genocide, the 30, 30-year frontier war in Tasmania. It had gone to Flinders Island and brought across to civilise the Victorian backs. And I thought... Why don't they know about this story? And I checked for a number of other people. Nobody knew about it. And I thought, I mean, these men were judicially executed for resisting the colonisers for the heinous crime of protecting their way of life, their culture, their language, their lands, their people. You know, the type of thing, you know, we celebrate on Anzac Day when we go and fight other people's wars overseas. And I thought, how come nobody remembers these people? And we set up a little committee, my late wife and I, Alan Jose, who was a Torres Strait Islander, And uh, it grew and grew, and I stood for mayor a few times in the city of Melbourne to get the issue up. And about 14 years later, and it's like, you know, the Wave Hill mob taught us, persistence is the key. We've got this uh, magnificent uh, memorial erected to Tanaminoi Morbohina and Putirana and Plantabina and Traganini here in the uh, centre of Melbourne at the very spot where the two uh, men were executed. And I thought, you know, every, every inch of this land is soaked in blood, you know, from the Torres Strait down to the tip of Tasmania. And there were countless thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of men, women and children who were slaughtered during this 140-year frontier conflict, which kind of spread slowly across the land. And I think there are stories everywhere. Why aren't people celebrating these people? Why aren't they finding out their local histories and their local heroes and, and, and celebrating them and, and erecting monuments to them. And, uh, you know, my, my wife died in uh, 2017, but uh, she saw the erection of the monument in 2016. She'd been sick for a long time. And one of her last wishes was the men were executed on the 20th of January, 1842. And one of her last wishes was, why can't we have a day in this country which celebrates all these men, women and children who died defending their country and their culture and their way of life. And um, since then, we've been, you know, agitating to uh, make the 20th of January uh, Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Freedom Fighters Day, just to recognise them. If we go back a decade or even two decades ago, the, the Frontier War discussion created more tension, if anything, uh, amongst the wider Australian public than what good it should have delivered. How far have we come on this journey and how far do we have to go? I don't think we've come very far because the Frontier War 
actually confronts people like me, you know, I'm, I'm the son of immigrants, came across from southern Italy, you know, 60 years, 70 years ago. It actually um, is confronting because it actually highlights the history, the black history of this country, this country of a black history for over 60,000 years. And we were um, resisted. This, this thing to have this monument was resisted every turn. And in some sections, even in some sections of the Aboriginal community, but it was resisted all along the way for a variety of reasons. It was a very tough struggle. And I don't think we've come that far because the frontier wars mean stealing people's land, right? Not compensating them. So it raises all these issues of uh, whose land is it, issues of treaty, issues of uh, reconciliation, issues of justice. It raises all these issues which, as a society, especially our leaders, they're not actually willing to uh, confront it or deal with it because it, it opens that Pandora's box, which needs to be opened. We know that there was a uh, a long-running effort to scare people. Uh, you know, the mob are going to take your backyard and your clothes on if you're not careful. Again, this journey of educating the wider Australian public, it is a slow and arduous task, and as you say, it opens up a lot of old wounds. But if we don't keep revisiting it, how are the kids ever going to know the true history of this country? My late wife and I and children, we used to live in municipality called Bayside, and on Saturday we had uh, quite an interesting uh, exercise. All the children that uh, go to school in Bayside, which is, you know, is a large area of over... I think more people live in Bayside than live in the Northern Territory. And uh, all the children were invited to participate in a project about reconciliation. It was called Reconciliation Through Their Eyes, and we had a little prize from from my Laywise Foundation, you know, for the kids for an artwork from prep to grade three and grade four to six and then essays, you know, in the, in the higher, you know, seven to ten. And, and there were, we had about three to 300, 350 people there and lots of kids. And it is hard work and I don't expect that our political leaders will do anything until we push them to do anything because they don't want to do anything. And you've got to do the groundwork. And that's what we found with the, trying to get the monument up and going. It was very hard work. We had a very good committee, uh, but it was very hard work and it was resistance. But we now have a monument to the Frontier Wars in Melbourne, one of the major cities of this country. And I'd like to see monuments everywhere. But they won't happen unless local committees spring up of uh, both uh, you know, black and white and uh, spring up to actually look at the history of their area and then agitate with their local councils. It's the local councils, which is, you've got to... Uh, get on board as far as monuments are concerned and uh, to, to, to establish a monument. There aren't enough, aren't enough around this country. A memorial at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra recognising the frontier warriors. It was raised some time ago. As we progress and these stories become more and more obvious, putting pressure on the politicians to acknowledge the very first freedom fighters of this country, can it be a reality? Well, anything can be a reality if people put their uh, efforts and energies into it. What the War Memorial and the Australian Government did is diverted the push to have the frontier wars uh, respected by actually putting uh, a greater emphasis on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who fought, you know, in the Boer War and the First World War and the Second World War and and, and all the uh, conflicts since then. So they've actually deflected that particular issue and they say, 
uh, we recognise Indigenous contribution. But that's Indigenous contributions to Australia. It's not Indigenous contributions to resistance, to the creation of the colonial entity of Australia. And it would be appropriate, in my opinion, that there was a section of the Australian War Memorial which was devoted to the frontier wars where these men and women, and there were many who resisted, most everybody resisted. We've well, got to look at this, look at the history of Tasmania, that, that 30-year war where over 15,000 people were whittled down to 232 and within three years of going to Flinders Island, they were down to 80, you know? So I agree, it is an important issue, but I've learned over the years, and I'm nearly 70, I've learned over the years is you can knock on a politician's door, but unless you've got people behind you saying that we want this, local communities wanting this, you don't get you don't get very far. But if you've got local communities wanting things and knocking on politicians' doors, starting with your local councils, because they're responsible for the erection of monuments in their area, uh, you've got a, a better chance of, uh, of succeeding. That was Dr Joseph Toscano there. Uh speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing shortly about uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth incarceration and the call from human rights groups for the government to uh, raise, the, raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our final story now. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth are 17 times more likely to be incarcerated than other Australians. There are children as young as 10 being held in watch houses across Australia, some for many weeks at a time. Around the country, human rights groups are calling for the government to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14. The wise Jared Girdler refiles this report. Revelations by the ABC this week about the alarming rate of incarcerated Indigenous youth has raised again an issue that seems to have little solution. Cheryl Axelby is co-founder of Change the Record, an organisation dedicated to reducing some key threats to Indigenous people. I think we've seen and experienced right back since the stolen children's generation um, an impact and a break within culture, identity, connection to families, connections to communities, because once children go into a system, they become isolated from family, community and their identity. They actually do come out quite more traumatised within the system because it doesn't provide culturally safe um, options for children that are removed. And what we've also seen is the level of increased trauma of children within the child protection system. I've known kids who had more than 20 placements throughout the time they've been within the system, so how can that be any good for them? I was quite horrified that we're again facing another situation like we did with Northern Territory, with Dondale, but this is in a city watch house context. Um, Having children placed within a single cell facility within the city watch houses, um, which only built, you know, for processing people who are arrested uh, at that time and whether you know and the option is that they're bailed or they take them into a detention facility what is horrific is that these children and let's remember that you know even though children get in trouble these are still children who are going into an adult built facility and being isolated and uh, put in a a small cell facility um, for days and for some of them have been weeks at a time Cheryl Axelby Torto Sansbury is an Aranga elder who has worked extensively in juvenile detention and youth suicide. Well, I've witnessed a lot. I've, I've worked in death and custody. I've, I've sat on the National Age Act Committee with a number of Aboriginal and 
people from around Australia that put a lot of time into what we was hoping was create change, but it hasn't. You know, we get different governments every four years and, and different policies and legislations, and it just doesn't deal really with the issues that we're, we're uh, confronted with or, or affect us in our community. Does the media shining a light on these issues even make a difference? Well, I think the media does, but, you know, it, it's usually certain media stations like you from Radio Adelaide. You know, we don't really get the mainstream media such as 10, 9 and 7. You know, most of our stuff comes through NITV or SBS, ABC, and, you know, we just don't get enough attention focused on Aboriginal issues. And that's one of the biggest problems. I, I would say that it's got a lot to do with racism, and our racism is is focused at Aboriginal people and communities. And uh, you know, it's just a big problem at this present moment. Australia does have a problem, and it's dealing with Aboriginal people. So for the most part, it's up to the communities to deal with these issues with surrounding children and incarcerated youth. And I totally agree because I think it's about time that the Aboriginal communities were given this authority. One of the biggest problems I have is too many Aboriginal bureaucrats that sit in Aboriginal affairs and, uh, you know, uh, report to governments what they want to hear, not what they should hear. And this is the, this is a stumbling block for us. And we have, a, as you know, we have a hell of a lot of issues. And what we're talking about is what's happening with young juveniles in in Queensland and being incarcerated. What happened at Dondale? You know, nothing really has come out of Dondale, and the, the in the inquest into that. You know, and we've got young Aboriginal kids, you know, as young as fourteen or younger, committing suicide, and. You know, we're not really getting the positive response that we should. So how do you feel what the difference would be if Indigenous people were better represented in Parliament? I think it would give us an opportunity to sit down. I once listened to a Maori politician who said, if you're not at the table, you're the menu. And we need to be at the table because we have been the menu for many, 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 many years. You know, and we know, uh, I'm a 70-year-old man now. I know what we need in our community. I don't need some 35-year-old non-Aboriginal telling me or some politician that's just been elected that, you know, we know what's wrong with the country. I tell you what's wrong with the country is those young elected politicians. And this is one of the things that I'm taking notice of politics and the elections coming out. And it reminds me of, you know, when an election is called, I keep thinking of who let the dogs out. And that's what it is, who let the dogs out. And they come barking out with their policies and and promises. And this is another thing that we need to confront, policies, politics, and where do we sit in this all? That was... Uh Toto Sansbury there, ending that report from the wise Jared uh, Girdler. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this uh, Tuesday morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the program, we will be posting up a podcast of Strong Voices up on the uh, Karma SoundCloud. So you can just head to Karma SoundCloud there and the Strong Voices for today will be up there if you want to listen back to any of those. Thank you once again for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoy the rest of your day and we'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong Voices.